Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass effect. Lyrical oxidation, you're irrelevant. Mass spectrograph, your electron volt. Atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons. Gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron. Any and every mic you're on. Trans uranium, if y'all was uranium. Molecules, spontaneous combustion. Pow. Law of definite proportion game. Ink weight, I'm every element around. Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barbara DeGraff. I teach physics and astronomy at Western Washington University, and I'm here with my co-host, Jordan Baker. How's it going? It is going well. I, um, yeah, I'm doing good. I don't have any teaching credentials. Yeah, well, we're here today, and we're going to talk about toxic cleanup. And we're here with John Gunther, and he's a hydrogeologist with the Department of Ecology. How's it going? It's going well, thanks. And did I say your name right? Yep, you did. Excellent. Good. Welcome to our show. And we are also here. We have another guest, double guest today, Heather Good. And she's also a hydrogeologist, but she's an environmental consultant. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks. Good. Welcome to our show. Welcome to Spark Science. I want to talk about, we're going to talk about toxic cleanup eventually. But I, I want to kind of use this beginning time to talk about what is a hydrogeologist? How'd you get into it? How do you guys know each other? Is it a person who studies uh, water rocks? Water rocks. <laughs> yeah, yes. Water and rocks. Yeah, it's basically, there are a lot of different areas in hydrogeology. Not all hydrogeologists do toxics cleanup, although a lot of them probably do. Okay. But it's anything having to do with the hydrologic cycle, the, the cycle that water takes from the earth up into the atmosphere and then rains back down onto the earth and in the oceans and rivers and lakes. And okay. And what made you want to want to be a hydrogeologist? I don't know about Heather, but I have a degree in geology and, <laughs> and I think she does too. I do. Um, a hydrogeolo hydrogeologist is, is a specialty area within the study of geology as there's engineering geologists, um, geophysicists. Yeah, we had a geophysicist um, on. She's awesome. Mm -hmm. What made you want to like really studied the cycle as you were studying geology as a whole? What got you drawn, well, in, drawn in? You know, I, what got me drawn into geology, it wasn't anything, it wasn't like a, a special moment or anything. <laughs> I, I just, uh, they, were, they offered a lot of field trips. Mm -hmm. and um, It's true. You know, I think as I, I've traveled a lot as, as a child, and, and I've always been infatuated with landforms, and, you know, you, you start seeing geometric patterns and landforms and been curious about that sort of thing. And you're like, water did that. It's yeah, amazing. And then, so, so I started, you know, taking geology classes and ended up with a degree in geology. I kind of stumbled into hydrogeology, um, I got a job as a consultant doing the type of work that Heather does, and um, a lot of that work uh, applies to groundwater work Okay. in addition to geology. So my hydrogeologist experience probably came during the period of time that I've worked as a geologist. Okay, so you kind of fell into it. Yeah. What, what about you, Heather? How did, how did you get into hydrogeology? Well, I came into hydrogeology roundabout through geology, and my interest in geology was sparked by my mom, actually was a bit of a rock hound when I was younger, and she had a boyfriend for a time that she and her boyfriend would go and mine Herkimer diamonds in upstate New York, which what? are actually not diamonds, but they look similar to diamonds. Ooh. And I was fascinated by the fact that she could go down into this mine, these public mines, and come back with this gem that stone that looked like a diamond. Well, how old were you when this was happening? Because that's mind-blowing like, as a child. Uh, middle school to high school wow. age. Yeah, yeah. So I was, that really sparked my interest in geology. And I also had a, you know, strong interest in science and math from academia. So when I entered college, I was looking at degree programs and wanted to wed that science, mathematics interest with a field that would take me outdoors because yeah. I'm an outdoor enthusiast. Yeah. So, you know, with that kind of background with the, the mine interest, then that got me interested in geology. But once I entered the field of geology, I wanted to apply it in, to an environmental field because I was concerned, you know, considered myself somewhat of an environmental activist when I was younger. And so I wanted to apply it to some way that I could 
help the planet yeah. <laughs> as is, an idealistic undergraduate. Is that common in a lot of geology majors or ones that kind of steer to hydrogeology, this environmental kind of activism that is related to that? I know we're going to talk about toxic cleanup, but is there kind of a population that's... I think maybe more oh. so in the early days, okay. you know, late 70s through the 80s. I think a lot, a lot of uh, young people, because there was such a, a boom in the environmental movement kind of across the globe, um, a, a lot of people kind of went that direction. What, was there like a... So you're talking about... Let, we can kind of go into the history of, of toxic cleanup and hydrogeology as like a field. Was there a big like event that kind of, like you said, sparked this interest in the 70s that you can kind of point to that? I think it was just sort of a general awareness. You know, the the late 1970s, I think, is when... Earth Day? Earth Day Day started and and the whole concept of ecology and a lot of the environmental regulations were being written, the National Environmental Policy Act and the State Environmental Policy Acts across the country. A a lot of the cleanup regulations were being written by different states at about the same time. I think the EPA, I'm not that familiar with the history of the EPA, but they probably spawned during the late mid-late 70s. It's just grown from there and morphed as a result of new information, finding out more, and we can talk about that more when we start talking about toxics cleanup. Yeah. You know, how how we're, we're able to see more now than we could even 10, 15 years ago. With, why is that? Analytical methods, you know, just, just, evolution of technology, you know, our ability to see we're we're identifying chemicals now, for example, that have been released into the environment. And not only are we able to identify them and measure them, but we probably understand their toxicity more now than we did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Okay. As a consultant, what are the kinds of things you consult on? Like, what, what would the environmental consultant do? Well, typically we help our clients with environmental due diligence of properties that they may want to acquire. So if they're looking for um, a lender to finance acquisition of a property, then the lender may require that environmental due diligence is done first to ensure that the liability of the property is not compromised by environmental contamination and so they would require that for instance like a phase one environmental site assessment be done for the property to look for any potential sources of environmental contamination Um, that's kind of a desktop study that we do kind of a first step for looking at a new property if there's nothing that's previously known if there's not already identified contamination at a property Um, Through that phase one process, if there are potential sources of contamination identified, then you may take the next step to do what's called a phase two environmental site assessment, um, where you actually go out and collect samples of soil or groundwater or sediment and analyze them and look for chemicals associated with whatever uh, environmental concerns you've identified at the property. So for instance, if you looked at the records through your desktop review and found out that there had been a leaking underground storage tank on the property that contained fuel, then you might go and collect soil and groundwater samples and analyze them for petroleum hydrocarbons, for instance. Do a lot of just like residents do this or is this more of a like business thing that people This is more of a business thing because residential people aren't purchasing residential properties that have been used for industrial purposes, which have contaminated those properties typically, although you do have um, some residential properties that may have historical heating oil tanks on them. I know that there's a number of homes in uh, Bellingham that Mm. have had heating oil tanks that they've needed to remove and remediate at cost to the property owner. In the past, there was funding grant assistance available to families to help them with that process. I don't believe there's any. There is if they if they're still but. using them. There's the Pollution Liability Insurance Agency that the state okay. administers, and yeah. if 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 you discover. I kind of went through this. I have two old houses in town. Yeah, so, so they're old I, houses, right? Like, yeah. so the, I'm trying to get yeah. to this. I'm yeah. like, who does this affect? Yeah. Like, who's going to have I, to pay this yeah. environmental, like, cleanup kind of um, yeah. cost? So you just don't look for them. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science. 
and you are listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Regina Barber DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We're talking about toxic cleanup with hydrogeologists John Gunther and Heather Good. Okay. What's, what's the most common contaminant new sites that you might build a home on? Well, on, on residential sites, like downtown Seattle, okay. there, there's a lot of historic contamination and the residences would be high-rise condominiums or apartments. Right. You know, in, in residential, single-family residential areas, you know, you're unlikely to come across contaminated properties and, unless you buy a, a lot that was an old corner gas station or something. <laughs> but petroleum, Which does happen. It, it does happen. Okay. Petroleum hydrocarbons are probably the most ubiquitous contaminant out there just because they're used, they've been used for fuel, for so long for our motors, um, every industrial operation, no matter what what they did, um, most likely used petroleum products to to fuel their equipment, solvents to clean equipment, um, maintenance, lubricants, all that sort of thing. And all those things have inevitably over time, you know, been released into the environment. Right. So, so even you're saying that is the most common contaminant, even in these like business um, properties that you have to check out. Yeah. Okay. What's the second one? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, as as John was talking, I I started thinking about nitrates because that is a a huge issue here up in in Whatcom County in the Abbotsford Sumas Aquifer, where you have uh, nitrate-based fertilizers that are being applied to agricultural fields, and those leach into the groundwater, and has resulted in some pretty significant nitrate contamination of the aquifer up there. And a lot of residences have residential wells where they get their drinking water. So that is a concern for um, residential properties. Wow. That's that is an area where you would see, you know, contamination concern. Whereas most of the stuff that we deal with is for redevelopment, for okay. um, right. you know, or industrial properties that have, you know, that deal with toxic and hazardous substances, and you know, releases are typical or common yeah. <laughs> associated with some of these industrial practices and but issue. This, right. But this brings us to, I think, b- back to kind of the main idea, like what is what percentage we deal with on an everyday basis and what percentage is like something that needs to have toxic cleanup? There are thousands of toxic chemicals right. that, that we use for any number of things in industrial uses, um, some of the things we keep under our kitchen sinks and, right. and um, they, they've all been handled and managed differently over time. And, and a lot of them have found their way into the environment and kind of tie the contamination to, to the source of contamination. There are a lot of industry-specific types of contamination, like manufactured gas plant sites. The Boulevard Park in Bellingham used to be a manufactured gas plant. Oh. So there's a lot of... Um, they, they, oh, John, they, now I'm going to get nostalgic <laughs> for working on that project. With Heather and that's I worked on that John together I met. for, for oh, a while. Oh, okay. As consultants. Yeah. And actually, that's a giant thing. renovation, too, so... There are known contaminants associated with historic manufactured gas plant operations. Sh- shipyards, they, they worked with metal paints with a lot of metals in them for bottom paints on ships, so you automatically look for metals. Um, PCBs, dioxins, and furans, and polyaromatic h- hydrocarbons are kind of ubiquitous contaminants associated with almost any type of um, industrial activity. Right. So, you know, you've got this host of, of, of different types of contaminants that, that you've either identified through the process Heather was describing earlier, the, the phase one paper study where, where you investigate the historic uses on the property and kind of anticipate what types of contaminants you're likely to find. And, and then you, you might see things as you move into the phase two of the investigation and, and find that they, they had a paint spray booth or something. So you'd start looking for volatile organic compounds and solvents and things associated with painting. And so every site is, it, is kind of unique. Uh, but, but then there are, there, there are things like the, the nitrates in the environment, you know, widespread area, wide um, agricultural uses, 
we refer to those in the industry as non-point source contaminants, and so they're okay. widespread use. They're um, you know fairly u- ubiquitous, right? As opposed to a point source contaminant, where you which would have, be like an old site. Yeah, like okay. a like if you had a tank that was leaking Got it. contaminants into the okay. groundwater, or the soil, then you know that would be a point like a source. pipe spewing stuff out. Yeah. You could identify <laughs> that's, 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 that's where it's coming from. The smoking yeah. gun. If you can point yeah. to it, it's a point source. Right. <laughs> but so Jordan and I um, lived in Linden growing up, and and there was um, a lot of um, pesticides used in all the berry fields and and all that EDB. kind of stuff. Oh, I don't know what that is, but tell me what that is. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. Either. I've never worked with it, but one of my coworkers managed the EDB situation in the North County some years ago, and they actually had to build a water supply line to provide homes with with clean w- water. Now, apparently, there there are homes that are being affected by maybe nitrates, and the the state and the county health departments are kind of in a bind because this pipe was paid for and constructed specifically to address this EDB problem and and the the people that live out there are asking to be you know tied into this pipe so they can get good clean water instead of having to buy bottled water and it's I don't know where that's going to go but so when um, when did that happen that in the north county what what year was that when they were using the the chemicals or when they they discovered the the, well I I don't 70s 80s Probably. <laughs> Hopefully before us. <laughs> yeah, before, before we got you're, there. You're not, you're not Linden City folk. You're, Pre-81. did you live out in the county? Uh, worked out in the my county. Hus- out my in the husband county. lived out in the county yeah. and there was like a, the um, rumors about bad water in his area. Mm. And there was a lot of kids that had illnesses and, and yeah. stuff like that. So I always, I've always wondered about that. I don't have any definitive, you know, proof or data yeah. or anything. Yeah. So. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we want to talk more about specific, like we're already kind of doing, specific cleanup events in the county and maybe outside of the county nationally. If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff. And I'm Jordan Baker. We're talking about toxic cleanup with hydrogeologists John Gunther and Heather Good. Spark Science is an all-volunteer-run show, and if you'd like to help out, go to KMRE.org and click on the button Donate. So why do we clean up sites? Why does it even matter? Can we just, I mean, if it's already in the ground, like who cares, right? <laughs> Toxic chemicals, you know, present a, a threat to human health and the environment. It, it kind of ties into how contaminated a site might be versus what, what is clean. You know, what do we, we find contamination, we find these, uh, any number of, of chemicals in the environment and groundwater and soil and sediment. And we, we have to know how much of it do we need to clean up. And those cleanup levels for all the different chemicals are based on toxicity, for, for toxicity to humans, toxicity to, to organisms. A lot of the ca- contaminants are, are car- carcinogenic, cancer-causing toxics. And we have to assume a certain risk factor right and and for i think for for cancer causing contamination is typically 10 to the minus six one in a million um and so that you know the toxicologists develop the the contaminant specific cleanup levels okay i'm not a toxicologist right right okay. um, but, <laughs> but you, you so what you're saying you know. is one person out of a million can die of cancer and we're all good you, you know and, and it's not uh, the, 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 these are all regulations so the you know the regulations are written by the legislature and yeah. maybe the odds know, supported... ever be in your favor right <laughs> is yeah, that what, is that the line yeah from hunger games yeah but, you know, they're, they're reasonable. And like I was saying earlier, you know, over time, we're able to see chemicals at a smaller and smaller concentration. And we're learning more and more about 
the toxicity of, of different chemicals, and, and we're discovering new chemicals. Those cleanup levels do change over time. They're, they're adjusted. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to ask that. Is, is there any like chemicals where we thought were a lot more toxic to our bodies than actually you know, are um, over the over the decades, maybe they're not as bad or the other way, they are way worse than we thought. Like, do you have any kind of chemicals in your mind that are at these sites that kind of fit that description or? Our arsenic is a pretty ubiquitous contaminant and it's, okay. it, it can be naturally occurring. You find arsenic okay. in a lot of rock, um, rock, volcanic rock that degrades and, and ends up being soil. In Bangladesh, it, there's a lot of arsenic in the rocks there and so okay. they have a big issue with their drinking water wells having high levels of arsenic. Okay. Wow. Is there any, in, any organic materials that have natural producing arsenic there is organic arsenic yeah yeah that, that would be inorganic arsenic i'm not okay. sure of organic arsenic source, sources i don't typically deal with those yeah i don't know but so currently i think our our state uh, arsenic cleanup level for arsenic in groundwater is five parts per billion five mm. micrograms per liter okay and we've got a couple of major sources of arsenic the tacoma smelter that operated for Ever um, the, 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 the Everett smelter, and and you know they spewed out these huge plumes. So we wow. we've we've mapped out uh, the impact of the Tacoma smelter plume, and, and it's affected soil in, in, over a large geographic area. So there's there's a program in place right now where we're actually going out to. Th- this is something that affects residential properties. If you were looking to buy a, p- a house in Tacoma. Wouldn't you know, you, you might <laughs> you might want to check with with the State Department of Ecology and and ask them. You know, if if your property has likely been impacted by arsenic, and if it has, they'll come out and they'll dig up the top. I don't know how many inches of your soil and bring clean soil in and give you a new landscape. And yeah, and, the city uh, of Auburn has a large, one mile plus long groundwater plume underneath the city with volatile contaminants from uh, the former from the Boeing plant there. Wow. Let's go back to Tacoma for a second because there's the you know famous slightly mean, um, you know term the Tacoma aroma, right? So what is that? That that's the smell from from the pulp okay, uh, facility, and and you know that that might that's I, I don't know that much about air. Um, I'm not an air person. That that's your hydrogeologist. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> so you know, air, air is another component of, right. of cleanup. We we have air people, and right. we we oftentimes look at at vapor intrusion from from the volatilization of of. Uh, volatile organic compounds that might be in groundwater or might be in soil. Okay. But if you build on top of those, those, those vapors can rise and seep right. into, um, through your foundation into your house. And then we bring the air people in to right. kind of address that. But where I was going with the arsenic oh, thing is that that was an example of where, so we've got this cleanup level for groundwater established. Interestingly, I think that the I don't know if it's the state or federal. I think it's the federal maximum cleanup level for arsenic is actually higher than than our our state cleanup level, hmm. and we're considering adjusting the cleanup level higher. Hmm. Okay. Be, be, because of um, I mean to- toxicity is we're, we're not going to adjust it higher if if it's demonstrated that it's at an unacceptable toxicity. Right. But I think the the, the feds and all their wisdom. You know, have determined that, you know, at, at, at I think it might be 20 parts per million for the drinking limit. water, uh, maximum yeah. cleanup level for arsenic and water. Okay. So, 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 you know, they, they seem to think it's it's okay at 20 parts per mil, or billion. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Per liter. yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so it can go either way. Okay. So if I was just uh, trying to get a house in Tacoma, uh, <laughs> you just dig up earth. What a top like twelve inches, and then ship it off somewhere. What happens to the dirt there? A lot of contaminated materials go to landfills, and they're, they're engineered. They're they're lined, and it hasn't always been this way. Their old landfills are often cleanup sites because they were just you know there yeah. was an old municipal landfill down on the waterfront here in Bellingham. There was Bay. also the pulp mill. And we were just talking about a pulp. It, yeah. Well, well, I guess not pulp, but um. They paper. had a pulp and paper mill. Yeah. Area. Okay. Yep. I was yep. I was right. Yeah. <laughs> you were. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
and uh, so yeah, what do you what do you do? Well, there, there's there's all different kinds of treatment. You you can burn soil, you know, depending on the type of contaminant. You know, petroleum hydrocarbons will burn. It might result in an air quality issue, so you have to treat that. Certain types of contaminants, if you burn them, there will be uh, toxic byproducts. If you burn chlorinated chemicals, you'll end up with dioxins and furans, which are really nasty things. Uh, so you, you, you can uh, freeze soil, you can freeze groundwater, you, you, you can cook it, you, you can kind of make, wow. make it, turn it into glass to stabilize it. Hmm. Um, <laughs> wait, 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 turn it into glass. Okay, so how? So you're turning like the sand and like the soil. Yeah. Okay, okay got it. Yeah. Got it. Okay. I've never thought of that at all. Um, Vitrification. So, what, say, yeah. say it one more time. Vitrification. I think they looked at you know if I'm correct, they, I think they've looked at that as a potential way to um, contain radioactive contaminants as well. So the the pores in the glass, the pore spaces, but they're not in- interconnected. The pores are not interconnected, so they're essentially little prison Close bubbles. Cell. And they'll the be like a museum glass. of radioactive glass yeah. what can look yeah. at. Yeah. That would be nice. I like it. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Jordan Baker. And I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff. Today we're talking about toxic cleanup with hydrogeologists. So what happened? So you, you before our break, you talked about how you both met at the uh, Boulevard Park. Was was it a cleanup or was it just a a kind of like you were saying phase one, phase two thing? Or did you actually have to clean up stuff because it was an old site? Pe- did you say petroleum site or something? It's still in the cleanup or in the study phase. Oh. Heather right. and I used to work together for the same consulting firm. Okay. And we represented one of the parties that was partly responsible, the successor to the gas plant operator back at the turn of the century. Mm. And you mean 1900, not 2000? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Just, I say turn of the century all the time. 15 years ago. Yeah, I, I go like, I, I went to Western at the turn of the century. Right. Okay. I say that to my students yeah. and I, I find it funny and they don't they don't think it's funny at all. They don't get it. So, the, so that site is still being characterized. Okay. They're actually um, proposing to go out and collect some additional sediment samples. The, the contamination has made its way from up on the, the bluff, down the bluff, um, through the park, and out into the bay. Okay. And what they do when they characterize, they, they characterize what we call the nature and extent of contamination, wh- where it's come to, to, to be, basically. And, and so we, we delineate, you know, the extent that the historic activity has impacted the property. Okay. But my, my kid plays there, so but it's still cool. It's okay. <laughs> okay. So in this day and age, uh, after the latest turn of the century, why don't we just have like some sort of a laser or something that just like shoots into the ground and renders like the contaminants inert? Is there a well, working? Well, there, there are. Vacation like that? is something similar to I think well, can to we what just you're leave describing. The, leave the dirt where it lays. And well, there are methods of treating contamination in place. It's called in situ. So if you have uh, soil or grant groundwater contamination that it's uh, infeasible to get it out of the ground and remove it, then you may be looking at options to break down or destroy those contaminants in place. And so those are methods like in injecting uh, chemicals into the ground that break down the, the bad chemicals and turn them into good chemicals. Awesome. Chemicals by chemicals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what other big cleanup events are happening here in Whatcom County? And then we can talk about like nationally what's going on. Well, there's all of the Bellingham Bay cleanup sites that most of the people in the community are aware of. There's about a dozen sites around the bay, all attributed to historic industrial uses. A couple of shipyards, a boatyard, the manufactured gas plant site that we were talking about, the Georgia Pacific. Right, which we were um, also talking about. (laughs) The the chloralkali plant. There's the city's old municipal landfill, the Cornwall Avenue landfill. There's an old wood treatment facility down in the same area, the R.G. Haley site. Yeah. And they're all being managed separately. So the state is working with 
the port and the city of Bellingham, depending who owns those properties, okay. towards getting them cleaned up. The first, the, the largest of all the sites is an entirely aquatic site, the Wacom Waterway site. It, it's a, an entirely a, a sediment site. It's, it's the Wacom Creek Waterway that okay. goes out into the bay, and then it's a, a large area out in the bay that's been impacted by the Georgia Pacific uh, property. Right. And mer- mercury is the primary contaminant of concern there. Uh, what do you do with mercury? That's a good question, you know, depending... <laughs> Make a bunch of thermometers. Or, 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 yeah. <laughs> or what should you do with mercury right. is what a lot of people ask. You know, we have public meetings to present, you know, our, our best ideas and, and take feedback from the community on what should be done. A lot of people think it should all just be taken away. Yeah. Uh, cl- cleanup is, is ridiculously expensive. And not only is the cost a consideration, and it's not the primary consideration, but... If, if you think about it, the feasibility of going in and digging up this incredibly fine material underwater, you're going to stir things up. And yeah. chances are you'd probably make the situation worse than it already is. Right. You might get the bulk of it out of there, but there would more than likely be a lingering impact of contamination, you know, at levels higher than we would want would want to leave behind. Well, then or, you have situations like Hanford where you have a 100-foot-plus unsaturated zone that's contaminated and, you know, you don't you can't dig out hundreds of feet of no, rock it, and soil. And, yeah. so, we're, so for our listeners around the world and outside of Washington, we have listeners in, in Poland and, and, oh, and Italy. That's one of our highest ones now. I think it's my friend Michaela, but I'm not sure. But yeah, so Where Hanford, Washington, ha- Hanford, Washington, right? Which is Correct. like middle south Washington state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. That used to be a um, a power plant, a nuclear power nuclear plant. Nuclear power plant. Yeah, so. But yeah, so, so you're saying like, so this digging out is kind of sometimes um, not feasible. So what do we do then? So you're saying that you talk to the public and you talk to other um, probably state agencies and stuff like that so what do you what do you do well sometimes you just cap it and say don't dig there oh that is one you know it it kind of comes back to is it presenting a threat to human health or the environment Mm -hmm. y'all want to bring it back to that if it's not if you can contain it you know why do anything and unless you know if somebody wants to develop the property then then there's some incentive to to get it out of there so you can start mucking around and building something in, in that location. Out in Bellingham Bay, we're fortunate in that we have the Nooksack River that carries all of this nice clean sediment down into the bay and it's depositing that sediment over time. So there's um, what we call natural recovery. Okay. And, and so over, over time, the historic contaminated sediment is being naturally capped by clean sediment. Okay. If that wasn't happening, there's always the option of bringing in, importing clean sediment-like material and dumping it over the contaminated sediment. And what's happening out in Whatcom Waterway right now is a combination of both. They are dredging and removing some of the contaminated sediment, and they're allowing other areas to be naturally um, capped by the Nooksack River sediment. And then in the groundwater, there is a process called natural attenuation where contaminate dissolved phase contamination, so contaminants in the groundwater can naturally degrade by, uh, by a number of processes. So there's uh, physical and chemical and biological processes that can break down those chemicals that are naturally occurring processes. So as the groundwater moves, it can essentially dilute Mm -hmm. um, as the plume spreads, and so that can lower concentrations. That makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, do you say this? You were saying you talk to the public, and I'm I'm sure there's – we're going to label this episode toxic cleanup, and that scares people, but what you're telling me is, like, not as scary as I thought. I mean, how do you deal with this with public outreach and, like, education? Yeah, all all of our studies are published – for public review in draft form, and we take public comment on those documents. A lot of them are very technical, and, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the public can't hire consultants to kind of interpret what they're reading. But we, we try to do a pretty good job, and that that's the reason why we hold public meetings, is so we could, we're there to explain what, what these things mean right. in, in a more s- simple way. And do we typically change course based on on public comment? You know, no, 
<laughs> but you're letting but you're but, letting but them feel involved. Yeah. Well, not only that, but yeah. I, I think we're helping explain. I, you know, and that's not to say that that we haven't. We oftentimes tweak things and do things differently based on the co- public comment that we receive. But every document is is such a huge body of work that oftentimes took years to to develop you know to kind of turn around and say okay we're not going to do that let's start over and you know go down this path that that's unlikely to happen so slight slight tweaking happens but the main force is still there yeah okay well when the sites that john is is talking about are larger more complex cleanup sites that tend to take years to resolve and get to some cleanup. There definitely are smaller contaminated properties, uh, less complex sites that may get cleaned up without formal ecology oversight. And so um, you may not have that public involvement piece. Okay, that's true. There there are other pathways for cleaning up sites that do not involve that oversight piece with ecology. Um, So that might be um, someone that's trying to sell their property or someone purchasing a property um, that they they may do hire consultants to do like um, you like like me (laughs) Uh, to do an independent cleanup or to uh, do a cleanup under the voluntary cleanup program, which is an ecology it has minimal ecology oversight. It's an ecology program where you essentially do the cleanup and submit documents for ecology review and comment and opinion, but you're not as engaged in the process every step of the way with ecology. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll talk more about are there sites that aren't cleaned, and also, like, what nationally, what's happening, and movies. I'm Heather Good, a hydrogeologist. You are listening to KMRE LP 102.3 FM in Bellingham. Your community, your voice, your station. Spark Science is an all-volunteer run show, and if you'd like to help out, go to kmre.org and click on the button Donate. I wanted to talk about a couple things like, is there any cleanup sites that don't get cleaned up for various reasons? And then also what's happening nationally. So let's talk about first about the sites that haven't really been cleaned up. So tell, is there anything going on? Well, I've got some statistics. There's there's about 12,000 cleanup sites on, on the state books in the state of Washington. Okay. And, and of those, Probably half have been cleaned up, and and of the, of the twelve thousand, that's not to say we know of every contaminated <laughs> property, but but that that's you know we we've been doing this long enough now that that that's probably the, the the bulk of them, and and then there's probably a few thousand that are kind of in various stages of of the process. They're either being studied or there's some sort of cleanup action being taken, okay. or and then and then there's you know a, a few thousand that are just kind of in the, in the waiting stage, wait, okay. waiting for something to happen. So our show has so, brought, like, scare, and then we make people feel better, and we scare them again. <laughs> well, again, it comes back to, you know, is there a threat to human health or the environment? And, right. and, and if there was at a site, ecology more than likely would be taking okay. action to address that. There are a lot of contaminated sites that, that aren't harming anybody. So if I was to want to do develop a property, how long would it take for you to come down and do your phase one to actually digging it out? Wow, you sound like the clients that come into our <laughs> office. That's always the first question. How Jordan long and how much does it property. cost? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it widely varies. You know, it's it's really hard to predict. It's like uh, any contractor. You know, we because <laughs> you you don't when you come it's into it, it's more a, expensive than they tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Whatever you think box. it is, <laughs> double it. Yeah, it's a black box. You you don't know what's inside until you start opening it, peeling off the layers of the onion. You don't even know what you're gonna find. So you know, there there are a lot of things that can ex- increase costs, extend the time frames. Um, but, you know, typically the turnaround time for doing like that phase one desktop assessment that we talked about, that's, yeah. you know, two to four weeks, depending on the, if it's a typically sized property. Yeah, that's um, not that bad. And then following that to do like a phase two, you know, that may take six to eight weeks kind of time frame. So it's, slow, There's, it's slowly doubling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as part of time. that, if it's part of that, you're uh, you're hiring contractors right. to go out and uh, use drilling equipment right. to drill into the ground and pull out the soil samples that you're then going to send to the analytical laboratory, and then it takes time for them to process those samples and give you back the data, and then you're analyzing the data. So there's there's many steps to the process. Yeah, so it's not only just you time waiting for the property; it's you spending extra money to have like construction workers come out there and dig it all up and said that's crazy and when there's an economic driver it's amazing how fast things can happen downtown seattle right i've got a few sites downtown seattle and within the course of two years i've I've seen these pretty large contaminated sites be you know that they'll spend millions of dollars addressing the cleanup right up front because there's so many millions of dollars to be made, you know, post-development when you build this new high-rise condominium wow. building. That would be the opposite of a brownfield. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so it really kind of depends where the properties are located. You kind of talked about the two things that I really wanted to bring up uh, nationally. There's one, the um, gold mine that's, I'm, I'm trying to look, the contamination of the river in, I'm trying to find, in San Juan County um, in Colorado, that river. And then, but there's also, you know, of course, oil spills. So you have, you were talking about petroleum, that's the floating stuff that's contamination, but then this this mine, there's all this stuff that's sinking down, right? I think the contaminant is primarily metals, if okay. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. How are those two kinds of cleanups? Because they're massive, you know, yeah. an oil spill yeah. and this river. How are they different? And how are they like the same? Or how are they, how do they even do it? Well, any any large, you know, release like that is 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 very challenging. Um, and and there have been others. I guess you 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 would look at what the state of some of those other large disastrous releases are today. You know, the the, the oil uh, release in, in in the Gulf. Yeah. You know, how many years has it been since? It's I don't know. several, maybe. I'm old. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Turn of the century. Turn of the century. Yeah. So, so there's, um, you know, I, I, depending who you talk to, you know, the people that were responsible for the release are probably telling you how, how much better things are and how much the Gulf has recovered. But right. then, you, you know, the other side of the story is you'll feel fine people that are saying, you know, we're, we're still being impacted by by that, and that that's more than likely, you know, the, the case with any large release, the, the Exxon Valdez, I don't know, maybe that, Yeah. you don't remember that? No, I remember that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the, I, I lose track of time. When you're my age, you kind of, you know, the last 30 years just sort of is all within the, the last five. He's 32. <laughs> He's, no. <laughs> well, the, the, revol- the response is going to evolve throughout the different stages of the cleanup, so depending okay. on, you know, the initial release, they may... Um, and this is just a theoretical example. They may evacuate a town, there, right. or you know, in the case of this um, release to the river in, in Colorado, Colorado yeah. they instructed people to you know, there's a, a various instructions about letting your if you're using surface water as a water source for your your livestock to right. let the sediment settle out of the water before you give it to your livestock or to use bottled water. Okay. So there's varying responses. And so then right. as they learn more and they collect samples and learn more about the toxicity and the and the extent of the release, then so we the don't even know that is gonna vary. No. no, you know no. we we Very, know in the, the initial be- stages. Of we know the behaviors that. Yeah. of different types of contaminants. Some are soluble. Some are relatively immobile. Okay. Um, we talked earlier about how some sink and right. some float on water. Met- metals typically are uh, relatively insoluble and, and immobile. 
Okay. They, they'll they'll typically stay in place. Now, now if you're in a in a river with current, right. you know, it's it's tra transporting it. But it, it, as Heather was saying, you know, it, it it will settle, and so you end up with all this metal in the river sediment over I don't know how many miles. Right. And and you know what can you do? Can you go yeah. in and dredge it all out, right. and then you have to restore. Um, all of the sediment to kind of replace the habitat that was there before. Or do you or, put the dirt, like you were saying, yeah, yeah. the new sediment on top? If you're just joining us, this is Spark Science, and you're listening to KMRE 102.3 FM in Bellingham. I'm Jordan Baker. And I'm Regina Barber de Graff. Today we're talking about toxic cleanup with hydrogeologists, John Gunther and Heather Good. I want to talk, I go away, away from these like national horrible events and get like more lighthearted and talk about how is like toxic cleanup, hydrogeology, all that kind of stuff. How is that portrayed in pop culture or the media? The first thing I thought of was that movie Evolution. Apparently, I looked it up and it's like 2001. I seriously, I was like, that movie just came out. Turn of the century. Right. Yeah, it did it not. just happened. 2001. <laughs> Nobody liked it. It was an awful movie and it had David Duchovny in it. And But apparently like it had toxic waste and they were like mutants. I'm trying to click on it here so I can read the synopsis. But it's not working out. It's not, not responding. Working. It's not responding. Yeah. Uh, when I think about toxic cleanup, I would think of something like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where it's just like this sludge and you just get a shovel and then put it back in another like tin barrel or something or... A lot yeah. of toxics <laughs> takes the form of sludge, you yeah. know, so that's that's not far from the truth. So the so I think I'd mentioned uh, TV to you, John, and you said actually it, the real world is is crazier. Tell me why. <laughs> it can be stranger than than fiction, you know. That, that, that's for sure. I, I some of these um, sites. I remember being down at the Georgia Pacific, there's an area of the site called the log pond. It's a, it's a little uh, embayment, a little indentation where they used to float logs that they would bring up and chew up and turn into pulp or something. But uh, right. I was, we, we were collecting sediment samples and we had to go out there during low tide, which happened to be at like two o'clock in the morning. It, you know, we probably got down there at midnight and we were down there till four or five o'clock in the morning. And I was a, with a couple of our, our former co workers. And being down there in the middle of the night, walking around knee deep in, in this, it was sediment, but it was like sludge and it stunk. You know, it's an anaerobic. Oh. Uh, you know, sulfur-producing oh. sludge environment, and we had headlamps on, and, you know, you'd see critters kind of scurrying around. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, it was uh, a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um, but you're alive. But I'm alive. I'm yeah. still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, but and then there's also in, in, in the media civil action, right? So I didn't read the book. I don't read very often. But um, <laughs> Heather was talking about that, right? So how accurate was that whole, like, the legal part of this this cleanup and, like, um, going after companies that leave this these chemicals and don't take care of it? Yeah, I think that was a more accurate portrayal of real life. You know, when when you first started talking about movies, of course, the, the first movie that came to my mind was The Core, oh, which God. is just horrible from a geological perspective. But I saw from your website that yeah. Jackie yeah. at Captain Auerbach had already talked about yeah. that movie on your program. So I'm like, oh, we can't talk about no, The Core. No, I, I, I feel like every geologist like loves, like has a very love-hate relationship with that movie. I keep on bringing it up. A civil action, um, you know, from a for a hydrogeologist, that was an exciting movie for me because they are talking about uh, toxic releases and um, and toxic cleanup. I know it's been a while since I, I did read the book and see the movie, but it's been a while, so right. I, I'm not recalling specific details. John right Travolta. It, it's so funny because seriously, this this episode has been going up and down and up and down, and I feel like it, this is very scary stuff, but everything you're saying is like, you know, the Department of Ecology is really looking out. It's really paying attention. And if, if people are in danger, things will happen. And the only times we have these, you were saying, these brown areas is if people aren't there. Is is, is that a good, con like, 
recap of what we talked about? Or I, I think so. I mean, I, I don't. I, I would be a, aware of any known, current, serious uh, risks associated with you know toxic toxic exposure. Right. And um, and I'm not. You know, the exception is. Or are the, the, these releases like we were talking about? You know that occur, the, the oil spills, or, right. or the mi- breach of the the mining uh, waste, and, and and that sort of thing. Well, I think to put it in perspective, there's a lot of consumer goods and household products that <laughs> exactly. have much greater toxicity than the contaminants that we might come into contact with at a con- at a toxics cleanup site or contaminated property. Right. Um, you know your your shower curtain that has vine that releases releases vinyl chloride right. at very high concentrations. You know your uh, cleaning products. That's right. Yeah. So you know <laughs> consumers are again up and down, up and down. <laughs> your yeah. the paint that you might use and right. you know and right. historically lead based paint. You know right. consumers are getting more savvy to these toxic chemicals in the mm-hmm. products they use and so right. you're seeing less of it than we used to but it right. is still prevalent but you know just to put it in perspective the risk levels are are pretty low for these cleanup sites in in general um and you know and they're pretty well contained so you know the types of sites that we're dealing with generally what we're looking out for is if someone were to excavate soil from this property come into contact with the soil and they happen to get some of it in their mouth um <laughs> they're not going to drop dead right exactly okay. so you know it's it's uh we're looking at exposure durations and right. what types of activities that you might come in contact with these chemicals and there's it's pretty minimal and under very specific circumstances usually right. um, for most properties that you would come into contact with the chemicals at all. So basically I should be more scared of what's under my sink than going for a walk in Boulevard Park. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, excellent. Back to the pulp pop culture aspect of this, there's I think a writer that writes about like uh, mutants from Hanford. It's a local like Washington state um, author. And I think that to get away from this like public perception of uh, if you like you said if you touch the soil you will have suddenly superpowers and be a mutant no that's that's so that's what i think maybe our listeners should take away from this that's not how we're all going to become superheroes not toxic right. um, chemicals well thank you for being here thank you for taking the time to talk to us about toxic cleanup and scaring us then reassuring us then scaring us again yeah thank you <laughs> yeah thank you Thanks. you're welcome yeah, thank you for having us Thank you for joining us. We just spoke with hydrogeologists John Gunther and Heather Good. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, kmre.org, and click on the podcast link. Listen to us Sunday at 5 p.m., Wednesday at 9 p.m., and Saturday at noon. If there's a science idea that you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. If you liked our show and would like to help us out, go to kmre.org and click on the button Donate. Today's episode, Toxic Cleanup, was produced in the KMRE Spark Radio Studios, located in the Spark Museum on Bay Street in Bellingham. Our producer is Katie Knudsen. The engineer for today's show is Eric Faburetta. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.